hello, Rebels. You're listening to a free audio-only recording of my weekly Wednesday night show, The Gun Show. Tonight, my guest is Dr. Dennis Modry. He's an Edmonton-based doctor who has been very outspoken about the lockdown and how the government continues to handle the lockdown. Now, if you like listening to the show, then I promise you're going to love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our long-form TV-style shows here on Rebel News. Subscribers get access to my show, as well as Ezra's Nightly Ezra Levant Show, David Menzies' fun Friday night show Rebel Roundup, and Andrew Chapados's brand-new show, Andrew says it's only eight bucks a month to subscribe. And just for my podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new Rebel News Plus subscription by using the coupon code podcast when you subscribe. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com to become a member. Now, please enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. Alberta Dr. Dennis Modry says there has always been another way for the Alberta government to handle the coronavirus pandemic and protect hospital capacity. But will the government finally listen? I'm not optimistic. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed and you're watching The Gun Show. everybody thank you so much for joining me I'm not in my home studio today as you can obviously tell because my work has taken me out on the road to tell the story of small business owners who are fighting the lockdown by defying it today I'm actually in front of the crown and anchor pub in Edmonton they are great people freedom fighters please go out and support them anyway a few days ago on Monday actually at the Alberta legislature I met a doctor who says that the Alberta government could have protected hospital capacity while simultaneously protecting the civil liberties of Albertans during the coronavirus pandemic. Now, this doctor's name is Dr. Dennis Modry, and back in December, he wrote an open letter to Premier Jason Kenney. After all of his attempts to reach Jason Kenney through normal channels were completely rebuffed. Now, Modry's not some fly-by-night crockpot. In fact, in our interview, he will go through all of his medical and educational background. So you can see he's not at all some kook. And up until very recently, I think he counted Jason Kenny as a friend or at least a friendly. Now, Jason Kenny called people who attended a massive protest at the Alberta legislature on Monday. That's where I met Dr. Modry, a protest of 2,000 people. In fact, Jason Kenny called them unhinged conspiracy theorists. But unlike Jason Kenney, I actually spoke to those people, including Dr. Modry, who was a keynote speaker at the event. So joining me now in an interview we recorded yesterday morning when I was back at home in my home studio just for a few minutes is Dr. Dennis Modry. Take a listen. Thank you so much for joining me. Why don't you give us a, a synopsis of your background and who and what you are? Because 
I've seen a lot of people who are trying to discredit you. And I think it's because you are so outspoken against the lockdown. Um, you know, and they're trying to just say that you're a conspiracy theorist crank, but that's not the sense that I get at all. Well, <clears throat> uh, Sheila, yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, and I'm happy to uh, provide, you know, my credentials, if you will. Um, you know, one of the things before I start, uh, there, those people who would disparage uh, my education, my knowledge, or my views about these things, um, really don't know very much about me at all. Um, and a lot of those individuals um, ideologically uh, may think differently, both politically uh, or with respect to um, their view of what the knowledge is that has been presented to us regarding um, how this pandemic has been managed. So, um, so with that, I respect people's views who, who are different than mine. Um, and I respect listening to uh, people whose views are different than mine, uh, particularly when they can provide uh, evidence-based arguments to support their position. Um, it would be wonderful if all of us, in, in terms of communicating with each other, could listen to different uh, perspectives based on evidence. That doesn't seem to be happening, and we have a tremendous amount of polarization uh, in this world. And that is not at all my intent. My intent really has been to help government um, through my relationship, uh, my previous relationship with uh, Jason uh, Kenny, who I've known for many, many years. Um, we had many lunches together at the Mayfair in Edmonton when he was the uh, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Association. And he contacted me prior to and subsequent to his election win for certain advice. Um, and so, so it's been disappointing for me um, to recognize that the, the evidence that has occurred um, and evolved over time uh, has been ignored. And so much of the mainstream media and uh, governments are still embracing the concerns that were present last year when COVID-19 uh, broke out the way it did. So, so my background is that um, I trained in medicine um, at the University of Alberta. Um, I did my BSc in science and um, I trained in medicine, did my MD there. Then I went to McGill. I spent eight years at McGill training in general surgery, cardiovascular and thoracic surgery, critical care. And I did a master's degree in experimental surgery. And then after that, I went to Stanford University um, where I spent three years uh, doing postgraduate work in immunology as well as um, um, high-risk cardiovascular and thoracic surgery. And I was the chief resident in, um, on the heart and the lung transplantation program um, as well as the chief resident of the uh, cardiac surgery program as well. So, so with that, with that background, um, and actually there's one other interesting feature. Prior to being in medical school when I was doing my BSc, my interest in transplantation 
arose because of a fellow by the name of Cease Coobs, who was a cardiac surgeon who uh, seemed to think I had some degree of intelligence and he put me in his research lab. So at the end of that, I was doing um, lung preservation and transplantation experiment, experiments in dogs prior to uh, even being in medicine. So that was probably how my interest in transplantation came up. Now, when I came back from Stanford University in 1984, um, at that time, um, I already had, uh, that, was, that was kind of an interesting time because I was supposed to go back to McGill uh, and because I had numerous traveling fellowships, et cetera, et cetera. But the University of Alberta made me such a strong pitch and the chiefs of cardiac surgery and general surgery came to Stanford and really wanted me to come back to Alberta. And I actually did want to come back to Alberta. And one of the interesting things that happened is when I did that, the, McGill sued the University of Alberta and, um, and I guess somehow that thing got settled and I wound up here. So uh, during my 30 years of, um, of practice here in Edmonton, I um, founded and directed Western Canada's first heart and lung transplantation program. Um, and I was the director of the cardiovascular intensive care unit. And uh, my focus was on high risk cardiac surgery, transplantation and, and critical care medicine. So in that time period, uh, particularly dealing with patients who were immunocompromised uh, so that they wouldn't reject their organs, uh, there was a tremendous amount of effort that was required by a team of which I was involved with uh, to prevent uh, infection and also to prevent rejection. So we were dealing with you know, uh, controlling viruses, bacteria, rickettsia, protozoal, mycobacteria, et cetera. I mean, all kinds of infectious diseases. So, so that, was, that was really my, um, my, my background. And so I've had a tremendous experience um, in, like I say, critical care and, and dealing with infection as well. So, so what happened um, after I retired, I was kind of enjoying life and you know, doing some other things. And um, then this COVID-19 thing broke out. And like everybody, last, last January, February, March, uh, I was concerned like everybody was. And we always look to the evidence when we are going to discern what it is we should do individually, what is public policy going to be, et cetera. And so when the World Health Organization came out um, with a suggestion that the, um, the mortality rate uh, would be 3.4%. Uh, wow, that, that meant that there was going to be uh, a massive number of deaths uh, in, in relation to COVID-19. So quite correctly, everybody was alarmed. There wasn't a vaccine available. People didn't know what to do. And so the issue of the risk, the the lockdowns, um, masks, social distancing, all seemed to make sense, except there were some things that weren't quite right. Um, for example, in the beginning, as you all know, uh, there was uh, no issue, no, no recommendation early on with respect to social distancing, and then masks were unnecessary. Uh, then over time, it became evident that, um, not so much evident, uh, but recommendations coming from the World Health Organization and elsewhere 
uh, were such that, well, now we need to wear masks and there was a need for social distancing, except the funny thing about social distancing is that there was no evidence for that, just as there was no evidence supporting the use of masks. And it's funny that um, the, the, if you go back in time, the only, the only um, uh, reference to social, the six foot social distancing uh, was from a fellow by the name of Carl Flug. Um, and that was just a recommendation and he made that recommendation over a hundred years ago. So you gotta ask yourself the question, um, as, as we're looking at things over time, you have to have, ask yourself the question, does this make sense? Where's, where's the evidence for that? And to this very day, uh, there, there is no evidence for six foot distancing. And as you know, recently, um, uh, the NIH came out with a recommendation, or maybe it was the CDC, uh, that social distancing uh, really didn't need to be six feet. Uh, it looked like it could be three feet. But what, what they haven't done is they haven't looked at, well, what about if it's uh, an inch or two inches social distancing? In other words, no, no, no distancing at all. They haven't right. studied that. Um, so these recommendations that have come forward lack evidence. So, so as, as I was watching things and I was reading the literature, because my interest was peaked and I had the background and the education uh, to understand what the studies were, were telling us. Um, and I was quite impressed when, I believe it was on October the 7th, when the Great Barrington Declaration uh, came out and indicated that, that um, here's, the, here's the evidence uh, so far that we have that suggests that um, masks are unnecessary, social distancing is unnecessary, um, and lockdowns are unnecessary. But what is necessary is to target the elderly and those who are immune, immune compromised, particularly uh, individuals who have multiple comorbid uh, conditions. So, so with, that, with, with, with that evidence, um, then I started uh, looking at more data, um, and uh, it, became, it became even clearer to me that, golly, the, the lockdowns are actually causing more harm, more deaths, more economic destruction, more educational destruction, more um, uh, inability for uh, kids to uh, pursue sports and other social activities. Uh, this was really stopping society in its tracks um, and killing businesses, et cetera. And so the weight of evidence started to shift in, in my mind um, as I saw this evidence indicating that lockdowns were far more harmful uh, than COVID-19, including deaths. There more deaths as a result of, of people um, exposed to drug abuse. Um, and particularly the thing that was most galling to me uh, was that so many people became unable to access the healthcare system. And um, because it's being blocked by saving beds for potential uh, admissions of patients with COVID-19. So for me as a cardiovascular and thoracic surgery, dealing with waiting lists and people having died on waiting lists throughout my entire career, 
um, I was looking at this and saying, my goodness, so I'm talking to my colleagues at the hospital and I'm finding out, yeah, they've been cut back by 30%. Well, I know what that, I know what that outcome is. It's more people dying on the waiting list, but it's not just cardiac surgery. It's all kinds of other things because in hospital diagnostic and therapeutic procedures are, are now restricted as well. So we know what the, the outcome is, is going to be. There are going to be far more deaths. Uh, even, even now there are more deaths from the lockdowns and COVID-19, but there are gonna be more in the future because of people um, unable to access diagnostic studies, wherein had they, had they accessed them in a timely fashion, they um, very likely would have had an opportunity to be cured of their underlying problem. So, so looking at all of this material, and I'm thinking, gee, you know, it, there's, there's no evidence uh, to support lockdowns in particular. So I thought, well, gee, on December the 11th, I, as you know, I drafted a letter to the premier who, um, like I said earlier, I know quite well. And so I was, I was hoping that I could have, I called him actually on his private cell and I emailed him on his private uh, email account no response. So I thought, gee, you know, I, I can't get his attention. So I, maybe if I send an open letter and the media picks it up, uh, maybe that will get his attention. And in so doing, I wanted to give him an off-ramp um, uh, against these lockdowns. Uh, well, he didn't take the bait at that time. And of course, um, and it wasn't the bait. It was really, it was really to have a private discussion with him. Uh, now it's become an open discussion with all of the public. And I really just simply wanted to um, talk to him about um, an alternative approach. Uh, so, so here it is, you know, we're locked down number one through, uh, or number two through Christmas. And that brings me, brings me back to um, what he said in the spring last year, or early summer, when he said, when he apologized for lockdown number one, because he recognized the harm. So I thought, well, for sure, he recognized the harm. He would never do this again. So prior to lockdown number two, he got my letter. It was the open letter, but he did it anyhow. And his rationale was the question of overwhelming the healthcare system. So as I pointed out to him, there was, it, it never happened. It didn't even come close. And the lockdown, there's no evidence that that lockdown changed anything because the virus is out there, it's been out there and it's gonna spread, it's gonna do its thing. There's not a darn thing that you can do about it. That's what viruses do. So, so we go through this period and to my surprise on March the 11th, I get a response to my first letter. And, and the, the response was kind of comical as far as I was concerned because again, it lacked evidence um, from him. So I had to send, I, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person that I will respond uh, if, if I'm challenged uh, and I will respond only with evidence. So uh, I did respond and I sent him my second open letter on March the 31st. And um, of course I didn't get a response. Now we have lockdown uh, number three. And again, it's the same narrative that the premier has used that we cannot overwhelm our healthcare system. I get that, I get that. But as of yesterday and today, there's 
uh, roughly 376 people um, in the hospital in 8,500 beds. That's like 4% or 4.3% of the beds. Does that sound like the hospital system was overwhelmed? Of course not. Uh, and then if we look at the ICU, that's a little bit different. There's 90 people in the ICU, but there's 272 ICU beds. And the premier said that we could ramp up to 1,081 beds. Well, um, he certainly could have done that without shutting down society as he's done again. Now, now one of the things when, when you talk about leadership and uh, you recognize that there is a concern and let's just give him the, the benefit of the doubt for a moment and say that um, it wasn't the hospital system that was at risk of being overwhelmed, but the ICUs potentially had the opportunity of being overwhelmed. Let's just use that argument for a moment and think about it. If he was concerned about that in the spring, then if he was forward thinking enough, he would have realized two things. Number one, if there was a second wave um, and that had been predicted, why then did he not plan to actually build, construct another couple of hundred ICU beds in the province, particularly in the major cities, Calgary, Edmonton, you know, Grand Prairie, Lethbridge, Red Deer, et cetera, some of the medicine had some of the major areas. Why did he not do that? That would have served not just to accommodate additional ICU requirements, but it would have also served to do something brilliant, which no government in this province has ever done before. He could have had a major win. And that would have been to reduce or almost eliminate the um, waiting lists uh, for patients who require ICU care after surgery or they come in with, with some other type of illness. We could have been the first jurisdiction in Canada to not have this ongoing uh, failure of our public health care system that is reflected by these long waiting lists. The waiting lists are worse now. People are dying on these waiting lists. So, so that would have been something that, you know, I mean, and, and I'm not advocating being the premier, but if I was the premier, I would have said to myself, gee, we have a neat opportunity here. Let's spend a few hundred million dollars and build these 200 more ICU beds. But he didn't do that. So, so here we are, here we are now. And um, he still has it within his, his capacity to say, look, here we are, I've, I've imposed this lockdown. Um, we're, we're going to lift it because the evidence doesn't support that the lockdowns would have made any difference. In other words, what I'm saying is the lockdown has resulted in 376 people in the hospital, 90 in the ICU. If there was no lockdown, it is, there's no evidence to say that there would be a higher number of admissions to the ICU or, or to the hospital system. There is no evidence. This is why, you know, this litigation that has been started um, through the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom, they're very likely going to win those because there's no evidence to support the lockdowns. And that's been, that's been proven again by an international study uh, reported in the Euro European Journal of, of Clinical Investigation uh, on an evaluation of 10 countries that, that it once again proved that the lockdowns 
didn't make didn't make any difference. So I think it's going to be it's going to be an interesting time, um, you know, you know, moving forward uh, with respect to handling all of this. But I'm going to give I'm going to give the premier um, this opportunity to think about this. We know that the viruses mutate all the time, and if there is a concern that a mutant virus is going to have greater transmissibility or greater lethality um, in the future, and that's going to cause the fourth lockdown. He has an opportunity right now, he has an opportunity right now to ramp up and build, construct a whole bunch of uh, new intensive care unit beds. And I think that is something that he should do because if you don't have uh, a thriving economy, you can't control these kinds of things very well. And we don't have a, thri a thriving economy right now, but this is probably the single most important thing that he could do would be to build two or 300 more ICU beds right now, double the capacity so that we never have to shut down again. Now, let me just say a word about the, the mutant viruses, because I think this is quite important to understand as well. Um, there is no evidence, hard evidence yet, that the transmiss transmissibility is greater or the lethality is greater of these mutants. It's, it, it, it's not. There's suggestions that it could be less or it could be more, but let's say the transmissibility is greater. Even if the transmissibility is greater, this is the way herd immunity occurs um, with all viruses. Um, and, and so um, increased transmissibility just speeds up uh, herd immunity doesn't increase uh, deaths or anything like that. It just increases transmissibility um, or increases the uh, rapidity with which um, with which herd immunity occurs. Now let's look at lethality. So let's say uh, lethality was increased double what it is right now, um, and right now uh, the when when if we take all comers and we're looking at a 99.7% survival rate, that means um, basically a 0.03% uh, mortality risk um, of COVID-19. Well, so let's say the mutant is, quite, is, is twice as um, lethal. Well, that would increase it from 0.03 to 0.06%, meaning that you have a 99, uh, instead of a 99.77%, uh, maybe I haven't got the numbers right there. Yeah, it's 0.13, so it'd be up to 0.26. So you would still have um, a 99.2% um, probability fundamentally a 90, greater than a 99% probability of surviving anyhow. And the other thing that's happening that's really exciting as well is that um, there, are, there are newer treatments that are being developed. Um, as you may or may not know, um, the NIH has approved and the CDC has approved, I guess it's the FDA come to think of it, has approved the use of uh, remdesivir as a treatment. It hasn't been brilliantly effective to treat COVID-19. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting is that um, vitamin D is quite effective. And for the, for the public out there who don't know why vitamin D is effective is because um, it stimulates your immune system. And it's important, it's a very important component to ramping up 
the effectiveness of your immune system. And people in northern latitudes uh, tend to not get as much vitamin D, uh, particularly in the winter. And this is why the elderly are most at risk, is because their immune systems are compromised. So taking vitamin D, it's now recommended, is actually recommended um, by many governments uh, now. And you know, a thousand international units uh, per day is what's recommended. If you wanna take two, do that. Don't take too much because it can increase um, the formation. Uh, it, it, it helps to absorb calcium so it can cause kidney stones if you take too much. So, but a thousand to 2000 a day is, 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 is very effective. And then one of the things I also found that was very interesting is that um, when you look at the way the pharmaceutical companies operate, um, they operate to make a profit. And so um, hence the, the pharmaceutical industrial complex um, has developed these vaccines and uh, the government narrative is you gotta have, you have to have a vaccine. Um, and well, that's well and good. Um, what the pharmaceutical companies won't do is they won't fund the prospective randomized trials to use other agents that are off patent because an agent that's off patent, there's little money to be made. So that's why it's been so difficult with respect to studying hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, um, because the you need you need somebody like the NIH to come up with the funds uh, to to pay for those for to pay for those studies. Now, there's one other thing, of course, is new technology, and um, I was kind of excited to see it's completed its phase two trials, but there's a drug called Apladin. That's the trade name. The generic name is plitidespin, and it's used to treat multiple myeloma. <clears throat> and um, it's been found to be 30 times more effective than remdesivir. So is that a cure? I don't know if it's a cure or it's not a cure. Um, the phase three trials are randomized prospective trials. It's, um, it's, um, it, it, it's owned, the patent is owned by a company in uh, Spain. And we'll see what the results of those studies show. But we are in a time period where, as you know, knowledge, um, if you take a graph like this, um, and this is time and this is knowledge, uh, it's exponential. So this is why, you know, uh, it's taken previously four, five, eight years to develop a vaccine. Now we have vaccines developed in less than a year. So and some of these vaccines, you know, may have some problems, but I think overall they're going to, at the end of the day, after we see another two or three years, I think overall they're probably going to be reasonably safe. Um, and we will understand better in the next few years if, if certain people have genetic predispositions, what other underlying conditions may put them in a, in a higher risk to develop a complication from, these vac from some of these vaccines as well. So knowledge is, is, is growing. And I'm just delighted that I'm, my brain still works uh, sufficiently that I can evaluate this, be excited about it, and I'm happy to share it with anybody who feels like uh, chatting with me about it. So that's, that's pretty much um, what I have to say about COVID-19. But I could talk about a whole bunch of other things if you want as well.
<laughs> but, uh, Doctor, but for example, Dr. is Alberta independence the right thing for Alberta? <laughs> you know, I could get into that one too. Anyhow. You know, Dr. Modri, this is probably the easiest interview that I've ever done because I asked you one question and you answered the 10 that I had on my list of things to ask you. Um, and it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to ask you now, you and I met yesterday, so Monday at the Alberta legislature for the first time. I've been paying attention to you for quite some time. And I think maybe the feeling was a little bit mutual. It was. It was. <laughs> I was wondering but, how I could meet you. <laughs> now, after what happened at the legislature, I think it was great. There was, you know, I would guess probably 2000 people there. Um, but then the premier decided that he needed to denounce everybody there um, basically called everybody there a bunch of unhinged conspiracy theorists. And that wasn't my experience. I saw people who are not anti-vaccine, but rather anti-coercion uh, with regard to taking vaccines and anti-tying the reopening of the economy to taking experimental vaccines. Um, and I found it interesting that Premier Kenny was outraged and I guess the government officially apologized because the crowd at one point chanted about Dr. Dina Hinshaw, lock her up. Now, I don't think they really mean lock her up. I feel like these are a bunch of disgruntled people who feel their civil liberties are being tromped on. A lot of them are unemployed because of the lockdown. And I think they're letting off soon. But I thought it was pretty interesting how um, the pro let's lock up a pastor for saying religious services side of the argument is outraged that a bunch of people were blowing off steam, chanting locker up, <clears throat> excuse me, about an unelected, very well-paid public health bureaucrat. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, um, I respect um, the, the premier. Uh, I respect uh, Dina Hinshaw. Um, they have their views. I think it would be, uh, as you know, um, I and Dr. Ari Jaffe, who's an infectious specialist, uh, pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at the University Hospital, um, and Colonel Redmond, who had drafted um, policy with respect to how pandemics should be uh, handled, um, uh, which has been embraced by you know, other countries around the world. Uh, and of course, Dr. Hodkinson as well. I thought that it would have had, would have been of benefit uh, to uh, caucus if um, if the four of us uh, could have met uh, with Dr. Hinshaw and Mr. Shandro in any other positions that um, Dr. Hinshaw would have liked to have brought to a discussion and had a, a healthy debate, not an hour but spend an entire morning or maybe even spend an entire day with caucus and, 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 let's, and let's go over things. Um, and I think at the end of that, uh, you know, the vitriol um, that has been expressed by maybe both sides of the equation mm -hmm. uh, would not have occurred. I, I, I don't know, I just, but as you know, um, when, when people actually do communicate uh, you can you can and they're and they're open-minded to hear a different uh, perspective uh, you you can oftentimes come to a meeting of the minds our goal was not to disparage 
the government and, and what they were doing. Our goal was to um, have a discussion to try and compel a different um, uh, path forward. And it's like I said, you know, if, uh, if it were the case that, um, that Dr. Hinshaw and the Premier and Minister Shandro were gonna dig their feet in with respect to a lockdown, they could have at least um, registered their view about ramping up um, the, the number of ICU beds, actually do something that would not only be good in the short term, but in the long term. And that would have prevented any further lockdowns from occurring in the future. So when, when Premier Kenny rages about uh, conspiracy theorists, nobody said anything that was a of a conspiracy yesterday. Um, certainly the press conferences that Roger and I gave, there was nothing conspiratorial about anything that we, that we said um, at all. I think the premier is frustrated and his comment um, was political. Uh, I don't think it was directed um, with malicious intent at any of the speakers. Um, I tend to believe that because I think he's, uh, he's a genuine person and he, has his, and he has his views that about these lockdowns, um, which um, I disagree with for the reasons that, that, um, that I stated. But here's where we could come to a meeting of the minds. And that's on what I said earlier, a couple of times now, and that is build out two or 300 more ICU beds. That gives him another off ramp to get away from these lockdowns. It's a, it's a simple solution. Yeah, it's going to cost a few hundred million dollars and yeah, you got to educate the, the nursing staff, but that's leadership. And that's leadership that doesn't exist in many centers around the world right now. So he could prove himself as a real leader if he would do something like that. So as you can see, my focus is not to disparage the premier or Dina Hinshaw, but I do disparage the rationale for the lockdowns, particularly when they're not thinking uh, ahead. So if you think we've been locked down for the third time and it's not gonna happen again, if the premier doesn't do something as I've suggested, we're gonna be facing another lockdown because as soon as he gets to 60 or 70 beds in the ICU that are purportedly COVID-19, uh, then we're gonna be locked down again. But here's something that I want to mention as well. I, I just wanna make a point about PCR testing. The PCR testing looks at um, the cycle thresholds of the genetic material that is in a virus and it cycles it, it amplifies it to a point where it can be identified. Here's the problem, is that um, uh, coronaviruses, uh, sev about 79 to 80% of them have common genetic material within them. So, so that's one thing, including the common cold. So if you've got a fragment of a virus and you amplify it, you're never really 100% sure uh, if you're at cycle thresholds over 33, as Dr. Fauci says, that are unreliable, that you're really dealing with, with the COVID-19 virus, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So, so what does that mean? Why that is so important uh, to understand is that many of these people who are admitted to hospital have underlying diseases. In fact, um, 
80 to 90% of them have underlying diseases. I think it's 90% actually. And what that means is that if they are admitted to hospital, um, and is it their underlying disease that has got them into trouble? Uh, or is it truly um, a COVID-19 illness? And this is, this is again the problem because when patients die and they have a, a PCR cycle threshold uh, that is uh, greater than 33 or 35 or 40 even, um, then did they really die of COVID-19? And the evidence would suggest, in fact, they didn't. They died of their underlying disease. And part of the problem that we're facing when we look at the data is that what Alberta Health Services does not do is they do not uh, determine the cycle threshold. They, don't, they do not record the cycle threshold with every patient who is diagnosed with COVID-19 at, at, and, and at the time of death. So we don't, we, we, we don't have that evidence. And, and that would be extremely helpful. Uh, but here we are, and um, many of these deaths and admissions, in fact, cannot be COVID-19. Uh, um, it's coincidental, and it's, it's not cause and effect. So I think that's an important, uh, a point, a, an important point to make. And if we were having this discussion with Dr. Hinshaw, I'm quite certain that we could, we could, from that point forward, say uh, any diagnosis of COVID-19 going forward, we will record the cycle threshold and we will be absolutely sure. And if you want it, and, 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 and as Dr. Hodkinson has so eloquently stated and many others, it doesn't help to do a, a COVID-19 test on people who are asymptomatic. It's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. Um, and they should really just be focusing on people who come into hospital with um, respiratory symptoms in particular. And, and the, the, there's a more accurate test than the PCR test, is the Sanger test. Uh, it's a little more expensive, it takes a little longer to do, but if you're only testing the people who come into hospital, overall it becomes less costly, uh, but far more accurate. So again, that's another thing uh, that, that could have been discussed if we had had an opportunity to have this discussion uh, together with caucus, because caucus is, does compel the premier. And I, I imagine the premier is pretty upset about uh, 17 caucus members who are, who are objecting to this, uh, to this lockdown. And um, yeah, well, he brought it on himself. He definitely did. Dr. Modry, we're approaching 40 minutes and I only asked you for 20. So I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. I want to have you back on the show very soon because I, I want to ask you about um, what happened to the flu, but I'm also kind of curious to hear what you have to say about Western separation. So I want to thank you for your time and hopefully uh, you'll agree to come back on the show very soon. One comment. Sure. One comment. Um, if you really want to know the um, rationale for independence, the merits of independence, how it can come about, and how to assuage the concerns of those who are, would be concerned about independence, I will be glad to tell you.
Thank you so much. I, I just, I want to save it for another show because this is a full packed show. So we'll have you on again very, very soon. Thank you, Dr. Modri. Thank you. Okay, so what do you guys think? Does Dr. Dennis Modry sound like a conspiracy theorist, an unhinged conspiracy theorist? Or is he an educated guy with a different opinion than the government? Makes me wonder, why is the government so unwilling to listen to experienced medical doctors who think there was a different way and who also maintain that that different way, the off-ramp from this pandemic, is still available for the government to take? It's very strange, isn't it? Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see everybody next week. And I really could actually be physically anywhere, but I'll still be making sure that I'm creating the content our subscribers are paying for wherever I may be at. And remember, friends, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think. <laughs> <laughs>